So the NGO Act um, has provided so many layers of clearance that you cannot easily work without without clearance at very many at very many levels. So you'll need clearance at national level. You'll need clearance at district level. You'll need clearance at sub-county level. So by the time you start working, you've gone through immense layers of clearance and it's very possible that you will not even get the clearance to do the work that you're doing ultimately. COVID worsened the situation because in every district in Uganda, for example, we have someone called the resident district commissioner who is supposed to be the representative of the president in the district. And he doesn't even feature within the, the usual structures, but they have so much power. So post COVID, the work that we were doing had to be cleared by the RDC, which was also problematic. For example, we're doing work with, um, we're doing work with women in the public sector. And we had to go, I remember we spent about two hours at the RDC's office explaining the work that we're doing, which by the way is very legitimate work, but because it had words of governance and words of democracy and words of We've lost you, Isabel, again, we've lost you. One of the causes, am I back? <laughs> Yes, you'll have to. Am I back? Yes, now you are. I. Okay, so the Public Order Management Act, one of the clauses in the act states that you have to inform the police so that the police can be able to give you security. But police has used that, has used that section to demand or to suggest that we have to get permission from them. So you might inform police and police will still come and close up your meeting because you, and, and claim that they did not give you permission, which is problematic. And so for us, the space is shrinking, but it's shrinking in a very, should I say legal manner, like the, the system has provided law and policy for our space to shrink. It is not that they're doing it illegally. Okay, there might be illegalities around them, but they have placed it within the law. But also when it comes to, to the story of collective experiences, especially as an activist, I'd like to tell three stories. And I know that my time ends at two, at, at uh, 17.28, so I have four minutes. But I'd like to tell um, three stories. On election day, I went to cast my vote. I, I was at my polling station by 6.30 a.m. I cast my vote at about 10 a.m. And then civil society was putting out a statement. So I went to be part putting out of the statement. After the statement, uh, we were accredited to observe elections. A few organizations were accredited to observe elections. And so the accredited organizations had put up a data center because uh, about 2,400 um, uh, observers had been deployed across the country. So there was a data center running. The police raided the data center on election day in partnership with the electoral commission. This was after the electoral commission had refused to grant external observers access to our country. So one of the things you should know is that we did not have external election observers. The only people who observed elections were local civil society organizations who were also raided on election day. 
And so when the raid happened, um, it happened in a data center, which was, and, and a lot of the data clerks were either university students or newly graduated students. So I went down to tell them that we were working on the situation and I didn't come back. I was equally arrested. And that is how I spent three days in jail. So that's the first story. When I got into jail, we found were about 25, pe 25 people who were arrested and eight of us were women. When we got into, jail, into our jail cell, we found two women. And those are the two other stories I'd like to tell. One of the ladies was a young activist. who was an agent of Bobby Wine. She had been picked because she had been brought to the cell because she had accidentally written in the wrong section of the of the of the agent form that she had been given, and simply because she wrote something wrongly, she was brought to cell. And even after we looked after three days, we we found her there and left her there. Okay. And what what was her crime? simply putting information in the wrong section of a paper, which could easily have been rectified. The second woman that we found was an older woman. And the reason she was in jail is because around election time, there were a lot of raids that happened. Now in one of the areas outside town, a raid happened in a, in a, around a business district. And so her sons, she has three sons. So two of her sons were arrested. But after the raid happened, the police officers asked for names of everyone who worked in that area. And so another son of hers had his name on the list. When she came to check on her two sons, she was arrested and told that they were going to keep her until her other son turned himself in and then they would release her. Now, whenever we spoke to her, she was so broken because she said after her two sons were arrested, she had taken on the care of their children and their wives, okay? And now she was in and she did not know what was happening to the children, to her grandchildren who she had left at home. And, and so these two stories are just, are just illustrations of how many other stories out there we will never hear because of the internet blackout, because of the kidnaps that happen every day. We cannot account for the women or for the children or for the men who have been arrested in this period. Around the plight of activists, uh, especially young female activists, there's the issue of sexualization. And this happens within the activist space, within the sector space, but also within the main space. Of course, it's, it, it's, it's quite sad that it would happen within because you'd expect that your male counterparts in the struggle would be able to understand your plight. The other, the other one that is linked to the plight of uh, especially female activists is the issue of emotional abuse. I think it's an area that we take for granted a lot, but you see, you'll go for a talk show and you will be attacked. You'll be attacked because of the way you look. You'll be attacked because maybe of the, the fact that you that you're not in you're not married you'll be attacked because maybe of the fact that you probably are divorced you'll be attacked for a lot of things and so the emotional abuse is a little bit on the high side there's also the issue of the negative and 
the negative social and cultural norms, which affect every woman. But of course, if, you, if you're an activist, usually you're in the limelight. And because you're in the limelight, there will be talk of, but why can't you settle? But this is men's work. Why are you against peace? So one of the things, one of the conversations that has been, that, that they're attempting to normalize within our country is, is a hashtag called I stand for peace, you know? And so if you're an activist, that your default position is that you're for war, you're not for peace. The other, um, the other slogan that has been running is, um, the other slogan that, that has been running is hooliganism, that if you're an activist, then you're by default a hooligan. And so at the end of the day, if you're a woman and then you have hooligan and war attached to you, then you have, you're constantly trying to defend the fact that you're not for war, but you're for peace. You're constantly defending the fact that you're not a hooligan, but the constitution provides for you to actually be able to protest if you want. And so as we as we celebrate this women's day, I think it's I think one of the things that we must be cognizant about is the labeling of the, the labeling of activists, the labeling of women, but also the guilt tripping that comes with with the work that we do as we fight for human rights, but also as we fight for a more equitable society. <laughs>